Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Allison Harris. Allison is an assistant professor of political science at Yale University. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jen. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about our research with several co-authors <laughs> on increasing the civic engagement of people with criminal records. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure, sure. So in the area of American politics, mostly I'm interested in law and courts. So all of my research is somehow related to what happens in the court system, in the legal system more broadly. And um, typically when I'm conducting this research, I'm interested in issues related to the criminal legal system. So about how um, criminal trial judges sentence and make decisions about traffic stops. Um, I've you know, done work on disparities in traffic stops, um, and also just how we think about this system, you know, really broadly in terms of all the players involved. Um, so this project here is a little bit further afield for me because I'm usually thinking about what happens in political institutions, but obviously directly related to what individuals who interact with the system, um, who have contact with the system are going through. So our paper is titled Registering Returning Citizens to Vote. It's co-authored with a bunch of amazing people, Laurel Eckhouse, Eric Foster Moore, Hannah Walker, and Ariel White. There are a bunch of us, which is why we're not all on this, <laughs> this interview at the same time. So felon disenfranchisement has become a big political issue with reformers trying to change state laws that ban people with criminal records from voting. So tell us a bit about the legal landscape here. What happens to your right to vote when you're convicted of a crime? So as with uh, most things in the United States, there's a lot of variation here. And so each state has its own laws with respect to what happens when somebody is convicted of a crime, when somebody is convicted of a felony, you know, what happens to their ability to vote. And so, you know, in most states, after serving some or all parts of a sentence, whether that's just a part that includes incarceration, whether this goes through any sort of post-incarceration parole, for example, at some point after individuals complete all or part of their sentences, they usually regain the right to vote if it was lost at all in the process. There are some states that are super liberal and then, you know, sort of don't take away that right. But in most states, you're going to have individuals in the system are going to have some loss of right to vote for some amount of time. Yeah. And I think this is usually when, so it's while you're incarcerated, while you're under yes. supervision, like on parole or probation. Yes. And then as you said, most places, your right is automatically restored as soon as that sentence ends. But then, of course, you have to like know that and re-register, right? Exactly, which is a big piece of the puzzle I think we're trying to solve. Yeah. Knowing that. Yeah. So for those with past convictions who are eligible to vote, what do we know about their current voter participation rates? They're pretty low, you know, compared to most other populations. People who have lost the right to vote, people, and, and even people who've sort of been in the system and maybe haven't even lost the right to vote, typically have lower participation rates um, than individuals who have not had a lot of contact with the system. And especially then, you know, um, when we're thinking about individuals who've been convicted of a felony and have had to serve some sort of sentence. So obviously, then simply making people legally eligible, as I was just saying, does not <laughs> automatically convert them into voters. So exactly. what are the reasons that those participation rates might be so low? You know, I think a main reason, what you just alluded to, is that people aren't aware 
of their restored right to vote. So I think people become very aware that they've lost the right once they're convicted. Um, I think most people even assume that if they are convicted of a felony, they will no longer be able to vote. But I don't think there is a lot of widespread information about when and how people regain that right after a conviction. So I think that's a huge lapse right there. Um, It's possible that people would register and would vote if they knew they had the right to do so. Um, Another barrier here is that people are often aware that um, if they attempt to vote when they're not eligible, in many places, this is another felony conviction, right? And so if you've just been convicted of a felony, you probably don't want to risk another one, especially for something so seemingly minor as trying to vote compared to, you know, committing what we would think of as an actual crime. Yeah, I think there's. it's been interesting. We've had lots of conversations within our research team about the the various possible reasons here, right? Yes. And I'm sure we'll get into this more as we kind of talk about exactly what we're doing and the intervention we design. But it's sort of the other big hypothesis floating around out there is that the type of person who's had interaction with the criminal legal system just isn't interested in participating because their experience has been so negative. I think that's something political scientists think a lot more about than economists. Yep. <laughs> so you can, <laughs> yeah, you might want to say a little bit more than me. We do there, you know, there is the line of thought here, the line of reasoning and research that looks into the possibility that, right? Like once individuals have contact, usually unwanted contact with this system, if this is their primary interaction with the state. And for many people who get caught up in the system, this is in fact their primary contact with the state, right? We're not talking about a group of people who are likely to have had meetings with their state representative, for example, or who um, are likely to have met one of their members of Congress, right? This is the face of the state that they are most likely to interact with and have interacted with most often. So if this is how you conceive of government, if this is how you conceive of the state, you can imagine a world in which you wouldn't feel very much like participating in it voluntarily if all of your interactions with it have been pretty negative. And so that's another reason. And then sort of another reason on top of that is because it's kind of known that this group of people tends to be less likely to participate in these um, more formal ways politically, campaigns don't necessarily reach out to them, right? And so um, in political science, you know, one of our sort of longstanding findings about sort of voting and mobilization is that people vote because somebody asked them to, right? So this is this is one way we think about it. Mobilization is really important to some people in terms of getting them out to vote. And if nobody's asking these people to vote because they assume that they won't vote, this is kind of this reinforcing cycle potentially. Yeah. And I will add one more hypothesis to this list, which is that we know that voting voting is often difficult in many states in, yeah. the, in the US, right? So you have to have a valid ID in many states and you have to be able to take off time from work to go to the polls on election day. And this is a group, the people who have a criminal record, especially a felony conviction, are likely more economically disadvantaged than your average U.S. citizen. And so it might just be that disadvantage that also makes people less likely to vote. So it might be that people with criminal records aren't voting at lower rates than sort of similarly economically disadvantaged people and we don't, we just don't have great data on that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it could also be the resource issue, right? As you said. And um, we try to get at this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit in our project, trying to sort of compare this population to a population of people who may be similar on other, um, at least observable to us dimensions, and see whether or not 
they are similarly easy or difficult <laughs> to mobilize to register and vote. Yes. Okay. And I guess I should also ask the question that I often get from my curmudgeonly economics colleagues when I present this paper <laughs> around, why is it bad if this group engages at low rates? Why should we want to increase their voter participation? I mean, for me, and I guess because I'm not a curmudgeonly economist. Um, <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> the answer to this is always democracy, right? So this is how democracy works. And it works when people are engaged. Everybody has the right and should have the right and be aware of their right. So if individuals are regaining their right to vote, then we feel best about our democracy if they're able to use it. I think for me, especially if we find that the gap is one of information, this is something that we can easily close. It's also an empirical question. We can try to figure out if the biggest gap here, sort of the main reason that people aren't registering is information. This is a gap we can fill. So we can identify that problem and we can actually come up with answers to it. Yeah. I think there's also just a sense that, and I don't know how much of the evidence there actually is for this, but I at least have a sense that our our democracy and our government works better when there is a representative group of the population that is participating, right? So we want people oh, who absolutely. have that experience and have experience with all facets of society to have a voice and be engaging. And so if the group that has the most direct experience with our criminal justice system, especially when that criminal justice system is not working very well, <laughs> if they're not <laughs> at the table and talking with their representatives and, and having a voice in how to change it, that's going to lead to worse policy. Exactly. And, and you know, we have to remember that at some stages, at least, they're systematically, they're removed mm -hmm. from the process, right? right? So these are prime stakeholders who are sort of forcibly removed from the process and then get sort of brought back into the process. And so should therefore be able to behave as stakeholders, right? And cast their votes to sort of create a system that they think better represents them. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I'll add one more, uh, since I do get this question a lot, I've thought a lot about it. <laughs> one more piece that especially comes from the efficiency side, which economists are looking for. You know, I think there's one motivating factor here in this study, and, and at least one of the main reasons I became involved in the study was that there's this idea and a hypothesis out there that increasing civic engagement can facilitate the reintegration of people with criminal records back into society and perhaps reduce recidivism. And so if getting people to register to vote reduces recidivism, that is a really cheap way to break the incarceration cycle. And we're not going to get at that in this paper, but I still have hope no. <laughs> one day of testing that hypothesis directly. <laughs> so that's another reason we might want to have in the back of our minds that this could be useful. Absolutely. I think there's another question we can answer too, which mm -hmm. may be a little less important, but not necessarily less interesting to interested parties. And that's, you know, I think you you know, we've all heard um, talk of the idea that this particular population may be particularly partisan in one way or the other, right? And so finding out about this population, if we can get a list of these people, understand how representative it is of the larger population, we can also get a sense of whether or not these assumptions are true. Yeah, as we will talk about, uh, it's been, we know remarkably little about this population. So, <laughs> really? uh, Yes. Okay. So in this paper, uh, we're going to try to find people with felony convictions who are eligible to vote in their home state and encourage them to register to vote. So before this study, what had we known about how to increase the civic engagement of this group in particular and of people in general? So this population, 
I think when I think of what we knew about registering this population, I think of two things in particular. And so one finding that was really important was that you can register these people to vote with, you know, the kinds of interventions that we did in our project. But sort of what this previous research did is, is that it relied on a list provided from the state. And so it was really helpful. And I think laying the groundwork, the kind of work that we do here, um, but prompted us, if I can speak for all of us, to try to think bigger, right? So in what ways was the list of individuals from the state narrow? In what ways, you know, was it not representative of the larger population? And in getting a more representative list, can we actually, quote unquote, do better, get more people registered, for example? Another, I think, particularly important thing we've learned from previous literature in this area is that the knowledge gap really does exist, right? So knowing whether or not you are eligible to register was actually a real barrier. Um, I think previous work found this with a study in Maine, no, Massachusetts. It started with an M, I'm pretty sure. But um, <laughs> that sort of letting people know that, hey, in fact, you are eligible had a huge impact, right? Like, or it had a real impact on whether or not people were registering to vote. So I think these are two sort of really important findings that lay the groundwork for the kind of work that we're doing in our project um, or projects. So that's really important. And then I think more broadly, what it can help, you know, what we sort of gather from existing research is that one, much of existing research on mobilizing people, getting them out to vote is really focused on that voting piece, right? So what we're trying to learn from in this study comes from studies that are doing a slightly different thing, right? So not reincorporating people, but getting those who are already registered to vote. And what's nice about that is that those studies had lists of registered voters. But what that doesn't necessarily help us with is creating that list of people who we might potentially register. Um, And so the other thing that we can learn from sort of existing research is um, trying to figure out how to think of returning citizens. Are they just unlikely voters? Are they more like new voters? So people who have just aged into voting, for example. And so trying to sort of parse that out, I think also helps us think about how best to characterize the individuals that we're trying to register here. Yeah, the piece about how most of the research before this had been focused on how to get registered voters to turn Mm -hmm. out uh, so get out the vote uh, efforts was really surprising to me, actually, as oh, someone really? who's like coming to this literature as a, uh, for the first time. I sort of had this impression that we know a lot. There have been all these, you know, RCTs <laughs> done of like how to get people to register to vote. And it turns out we know a lot about how to get registered yeah. voters to turn out. Yeah. There's still more to do, but like we know a lot about that. But we sent, essentially know nothing about how to broaden the electorate. Am I characterizing that? <laughs> correctly. Yeah. No, we really don't. And it's like, (laughs) which was just sort of, yeah, surprising. Yeah. It's like, how do you find people when like, so one thing that's, I won't even say like easy, (laughs) helpful for us is that we can at least get a list from the states of individuals who've been in the system. Right. Okay. So that makes the, our difficult process a little bit easier, but what if we were trying to figure out how to find other unregistered voters? How do you even begin? What administrative list would you start with there? What other kinds, you know, ways can we sort of attempt to go about this process? And I can imagine it getting even more and more difficult, right? So yes, growing the electorate is really hard because you can't find what you don't know how to look for. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so this leads into my next question about like why we don't know more <laughs> than we do. <laughs> so, so this sort of this quest, this issue that like in the United States, there is no centralized list of, yes, all, of all the people <laughs> say, right. Of all the people that might be eligible. And so you have to start somewhere. You have to start. So people that have thought about this, I guess, start with like yes. of student, like college students or something. So yeah. So say more about that, about like the, the data challenges and then, and then identification challenges, like what, you know, even beyond getting the best data, how do we tell what actually works, what's effective, and why is that hard? Oh, gosh, so many reasons. Okay, so first of all, in terms of figuring out who it is we're targeting, this requires the merging of multiple different data sets and in different ways. So first, we need to figure out in a given state who are the individuals with previous felony convictions who are now eligible to vote. And then how can we contact them? What are their addresses? So we first start off with a list of names of individuals who've been in a state's Department of Corrections. And so sometimes that is publicly available, relatively easily downloadable information. And so you can gather that information from the website or request it from a state. And it just tells you who's been in the Department of Corrections in sort of different places. So whether they've been in, whether they have been or are incarcerated probation, parole, et cetera. And then from there, we need to identify which individuals are eligible based on the state's rules. So let's say those rules mean that they have to um, have completed any sentence of incarceration and related parole that follows it. So then we reduce that list to those individuals. And then we do some further reductions. So we might do some reductions based on age, like we did, to pull out individuals who are more likely to uh, be deceased at this point, for example and kind of narrow it down to these are the set of people that we think are eligible to vote because they finished out their sentences that are likely to be alive. We can do some checks to make sure they haven't sort of, um, they haven't been convicted again since that point, right? And so we get this list of eligible um, people we think are eligible voters. Then we have to pull down um, the state's voter file that tells us who in that state is registered to vote. And what we want to do then is take our list of eligible individuals with former felony convictions and pull out anybody who is already registered, since we can't register somebody who's already registered. So now we've got a list of individuals with past felony convictions who are eligible to vote, who are not currently registered to vote, and then we need to find them. And so here's where we had to um, partner with a commercial data vendor and see if we can get what seem to be um, good addresses for these individuals. And remember, this is a, you know, well, I don't have to tell you to remember, but to anyone listening, right, this is a relatively transient population. And so we have to realize that there may be a number of people for whom we can't find good addresses. And people, you know, who, when we do find good addresses, like may not be at those addresses anymore. You know, the reentry process is incredibly difficult and has so many challenges. So you know, it can be hard to find people even we feel like we have good data, right? And so from there, we have a list of people who are eligible voters who are not currently registered to vote and for whom we have addresses. And so identification challenges, right? So then we need to figure out the kind of messaging that we think will be strong enough to have the potential to get these people out to vote. And also the delivery strategy. I mean, we used mailers, we mailed people pretty simple mailers, I guess we'll get into in a bit more detail too, but letting them know what makes somebody eligible to vote, letting them know the election was coming up, 
all of that sort of information and oftentimes providing them with the sort of registration packet. So registration form addressed envelope with a stamp. And so we made it relatively easy for most people. We also tried out some other strategies of communication of reaching people. We tried out text messages. We found out those weren't particularly effective. I believe there were some phone calls made. um, But what we landed on was that through a series of pilots that if we're going to see an effect, this was actually the way to go, sending out these mailers. Yeah. And it might be because our address data was relatively good, which I think was sort of a surprise to most of us. It was to me. (laughs) Yeah. It worked as well as it did. The commercial vendor um, had pretty good data. Yeah. So just on the, a little bit more on the identification piece. So, so yeah. So I think in, in general, you know, you want to have some sort of control group. Oh yes. Um, All that stuff. stuff like this. And yes. so, yeah. So we're going to run a randomized controlled trial. I think that's actually fairly typical in this space. There are a lot of, I mean, especially for the GOTV experiments. Um, so this is a space where maybe we worry less about identification than in some other situations. Yeah. We use a pretty sort of classic approach based on things we gathered from previous research. So simple mailers, we had five conditions. So five experimental conditions, one pure control. So these were individuals that, you know, we didn't contact at all. They're on our list. They're eligible. They're not registered. We have valid addresses. And this is our pure control group. They're not getting any mailers. And then we had four variations on our mailer that we sent out. And so across our five groups, so control, and then the four groups who received letters, individuals were randomly assigned to each group. So with equal probability of landing in each group. And so I believe our four letter categories were, let's see, so we had this basic mailer packet that I kind of briefly mentioned before that includes information about the requirements to be eligible to register and vote in the state. It includes um, an addressed and stamped envelope, as well as the registration form. It also includes some language about about being eligible if you've had a past conviction. And then we have a letter that is the same as that, but removes the information, uh, the language about voting when when you've had a previous conviction. Then... It's still in the list of eligibility requirements. Yes, yes. It's in there, but it's just not like highlighted. Exactly, exactly. And then we have one that is the same letter as the original one. So it still has that language highlighting that you can vote even if you've had a conviction, Um, but it does not include the envelope and registration form. And then we have a final one that is the same as the original full mailer packet, but it includes civil rights framing. So, you know, you want to vote, you want to make sure you have all of your rights, that kind of language um, that research has shown, you know, may encourage people to exercise their rights. And so those were sort of, that's the outline of our five different conditions that include four different mailers. So what was the motivation for the kind of highlighting that language at the beginning um, in our basic mailer? And then in that extra civil rights framing mailer for the kind of, you know, your rights are on the ballot piece, criminal justice like matters. Why'd we do that? Well, basically, (laughs) we wanted to see if appealing to the kind of sentiments we think might drive this particular uh, population would make a difference. And uh, previous studies that, you know, not focused on this population, but like get out the vote studies that have included information like exercise your rights. If you want to be heard, you need to, you need to get out and vote, have, you know, had some level of effectiveness. And so this is what we're tapping into here. I think another reason we did it is that 
you know, we partnered with a local or a state nonprofit organization that's really interested in mobilizing this particular population. And they also felt very strongly that it was important to have the kind of language up front that let people know, like, hey, even if you've had a conviction, you can vote as long as you're off papers, right? That's the language that they um, that we ended up using. And what was interesting, um, I think, to me as a researcher, I haven't had as much experience partnering with nonprofits in this way. I have in terms of collecting data and going sort of like sharing information with them, but not partnering in this way where we were reaching out to citizens together. And so what was really interesting to me as a researcher was being involved in these conversations where members of the nonprofit were letting us know what they know works, right? And they've worked in this space for a really, really, really long time. So you have to respect that. Then as a researcher, knowing that, well, you can't really know because you've never tested it, right? And so um, this was, I think, an important learning moment for me because you really do have to be very respectful of people working in this space because they have a lot of knowledge that we don't have as researchers. And they're also helping us out, right? (laughs) Because they're partnering with us in research so we can make our research really strong. And I'd like to think we can help them out too by getting them access to the kind of information they wouldn't otherwise, which in this case is potentially letting them know if this language that they truly believe is important actually is important, right? Because, you know, well, you can't know if you've never tested it, which is, you know, our hill, I think, as social scientists. Right, right. Okay, let's see. Let's go back to the list briefly. So what do the people on our list look like? So I guess we should say, um, we've probably mentioned at some point, this is North Carolina that we're focusing on. Actually, let's back up even one more step. So in this focus, we're in this paper, we're focusing on people in North Carolina in the lead up to the 2020 general yes. election. So what were the state laws governing voter registration in that state at that time? Right. So um, the state laws governing registration were, I mean, you have to be 18. You had to live in the county you lived in for, I don't remember if it was a full year or a month, but important for this project was that you had to have completed your entire sentence if you'd been convicted of a felony, including all incarceration and all parole. So as long as you'd finished those portions of your sentence and you were you know, 18 and met all of the other requirements to register, you were eligible to register and vote. Yes. And you could also register online in yes. North Carolina. Yes, that's right. Which is nice. Yeah. So next, what do the people on our list look like? So we go and get this the criminal history data from the Department of Public Safety yes. and merge it, as you said, with the voter file and then get the address data. Yes. So who winds up on our list? What do they look like and how representative are they of the broader population we were targeting? Yes, absolutely. So the good news for us is that the people on this list looked really similar to the broader population of individuals were interested in reaching. So that's people who have passed felony convictions and who may now be eligible to register and vote because they finished their sentences. So overall, they were really similar, the populations. Both were about 75% male. I think 76% in the full population and 75% in our list of people with addresses. So really similar. So our list and then the broader population that it comes from, each was um, about just over 50% Black individuals. And the one place that our list kind of differed in any significant way from the broader population was that it was a bit younger. Um, this is most likely because we cut our, um, we dropped from our list anybody who was 70 or above. 
And so it makes sense that our list would be a little bit younger. I think the average age in our list was 42 and the average age in the larger list was something like 50. And because of that, also people in our list had had a shorter time since release on average than the overall population. But again, our list was younger and didn't include people who were maybe like 80 years old and, you know, had their conviction, you know, three decades ago or something like that. And to be clear, so we made that that, that age cut off. Um, we cut off folks who were 70 or older because we were being conservative yes. in terms of wanting to Air toward making sure people on our list were still alive. Absolutely. And we didn't have good death information. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a world in which we could have, you know, cut it much later, but because we didn't have that information, we just wanted to be extra sure. Yeah. And then, so how long had they been out on average? So, on the full list, so in the full sort of population of interest, the average time since release was 17 years. In ours, it was nine years. So, they've still been out a fair oh, amount yeah. of time, which is also really striking basically the one other study out there that's been <laughs> done with this population uh, that you had alluded to earlier, where basically they got a, a list of sort of a narrow subset of folks that were recently released on parole, yes. I think, essentially, yes. um, in, in Connecticut. That's right. Those folks were, you know, had just gotten out, basically. And so we're going to be targeting people that have been out in their communities for many years. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's another thing that's exciting about it, right? Imagine mm-hmm. somebody's been released for a long time, you know, um, hopefully sort of like fully reintegrated into society. They have their routine, they have their lives. Maybe they still don't know that they're eligible to vote. Maybe they haven't thought about it. Maybe nobody's ever reached out to them. You know, I think it's exciting to think about being able to reach out to that population, especially. Yeah. Okay. So we, we have these mailers now that you've just, that you've told us about, we're going to run this as a randomized experiment. We've got our, our list of people. We randomly assign them to a control group or one of these four mailers. What outcome measures are we interested in to measure the effects on voter participation? Yes. So we're interested in two outcome measures. Our main outcome measure of interest is whether or not people register to vote. Our secondary outcome of interest is whether or not they actually turn out to vote once they're registered. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it's helpful because this is public information, yes. it turns out. Yes. <laughs> Which is amazing. It's the out there. Data. <laughs> yep. On who registered, who's registered in the state and who actually voted in the election. We don't know how you voted, but we know if you voted. Exactly. And that's, that's really all that matters for us at this point. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's talk about what we found. Uh, what were the effects of our mailers on voter registration and turnout in November 2020? So overall, the strongest effect of our mailers was on the outcome we were most interested in, which is registering to vote. So what we found was that receiving a mailer, so regardless of the type of mailer that people received, receiving a mailer compared to the control condition where they received no mailer led to a 0.8 percentage point increase in registering to vote. This translates to about a 12% increase, which is a pretty big effect. Yeah, that 0.8% sounds small, but super low baseline. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Like compared to people who aren't registering, like this is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was also, it's also been interesting to talk to folks who work in the practitioner space here and they hear about this 0.8 percentage point effect and they're like, whoa, that's huge. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Which is very gratifying, uh, especially in a general election like this where everybody's flooded with information. Yeah. Um, We were still able to reach this group that apparently no one else was reaching. That's true, right? Like think back to, you know, what's going on in 2020. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Like this is yeah. a lot is happening. Major presidential election. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And North Carolina, swing state. 
Yeah. So to make any waves there, I think is, you know, like that's really encouraging to make any waves in sort of that environment. Mm -hmm. So in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, whether or not our mailers um, made people vote, so the effects on whether or not an individual actually voted were a bit more modest. So 0.5 percentage points, which translates to about 11%, you know, marginally statistically significant here. We're not talking about the same level of certainty that we might have in our effects on registering to vote. Right. Still a big effect. Yes. But yeah, it gets smaller as we uh, are, are less significant. Great. Okay. So that's the that's the big punchline is yes. that this sort of low-touch mailer sent to these people that apparently no one else was targeting actually got them to register and vote at least, you know, about a a 12% increase. We pre-registered, we pre-registered a whole bunch of stuff. We pre-registered a particular interest in how these effects differed across racial groups. So what did we find when we compared effects for white and black recipients of our mailers? So we were actually pretty surprised when we sort of looked at the results of our heterogeneity analysis and, you know, tried to figure out what was going on here in terms of whether or not there were any differences in our effects across racial groups. And we didn't see a lot. In fact, we saw that, if anything, our mailers were most effective, most effective among uh, white returning citizens. Yeah, which is definitely not what we'd expected. It's not what we'd expected. Yeah, we and we did this a couple of ways. I think we like split it white and black. Yes. And basically almost everything's driven by the white recipients. And then I think that difference is not statistically significant, but it's pretty darn suggestive. Like it's yeah. just, it's, we just don't quite have enough power. Exactly. We don't have enough power, but it's also just not what we would have expected directionally. Right. <laughs> right. Especially given kind of the general conventional wisdom about this group that it is, um, you know, we know that people with criminal justice contact or disproportionately people of color, black and brown, disproportionately black men in particular. Mm -hmm. And so it was striking Mm -hmm. that we see a bigger effect of our intervention on white people. Of course, there are still lots of white people who have felony convictions. Um, So there are lots of them out there. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then we also did this fancy machine learning thing for heterogeneity, (laughs) just heterogeneity on other... other, other dimensions, kind of like throwing everything else we yes. know about people in there. This was your big thing, Jen. I feel like you should talk about this one. <laughs> Following some other uh, other economists, so especially Sarah Heller and Jonathan Davis used this in their paper on summer jobs programs and trying to figure out who benefited the most from summer jobs. So we we took that essentially off the, off the shelf, initially designed, I should say, by Athey and, and Wagner, I think. And so we, we did this and threw a whole bunch of stuff in there to see if there was anything else interesting that uh, that predicted which groups might have bigger treatment effects and what did we find there? So that machine learning approach sort of confirmed what we saw before in terms of the racial group we saw sort of the biggest effect. And the other things that came out of that were biggest effect among individuals who are male, right, which isn't too surprising, and also those who'd been in prison, so not just um, in probation or, you know, some other type of supervision, but people who had been incarcerated. Yeah, and no other clear patterns on other stuff yeah. that we had about them, <laughs> so their age or time since release, right. which I, I think I was sort of surprised by. The time <laughs> since release wasn't a clearer predictor. Yeah. Yeah. And then were there any other interesting differences in the effects across different mailer types since we had all these different arms? Right. Per- the <laughs> Perhaps the most interesting thing is that we actually didn't see much difference across mailer types. This is, <laughs> right? Right. This is, again, an area where we were underpowered. So, you know, future work could 
potentially like just scale up and actually see if there's any real difference across these types of mailers. Well, I mean, we were underpowered to find small effects. So it's possible that there were small effects, but I think we kind of went into it thinking that there would be big effects across the the language across these different mailers, right? Or at least like like including the form and the envelope. But I mean, the thing that could have made a difference there, right, was that they could register online. So maybe in a world where there is no online registration, we see a huge effect from having the registration form and the addressed stamped envelope included. Right. Yep. Okay. And then we ran a few other tests to try to understand our results a bit better. One thing we wondered was whether the different effects across racial groups might be due to differential address quality. So maybe the address data we had for Black recipients was just less accurate than the address data we had for white recipients. And so our mailers never even reached them. And so that's why we we saw such small effects for Black people versus white people. So we sent follow-up postcards to test for this. What did we do there? And what did we find? Yeah, we sent follow-up postcards to people trying to see if basically if these postcards landed and then giving them an opportunity to like do a little survey, I think, and get, what was it, like an Amazon gift card or something. Mm -hmm. And we found that we didn't find any real differences in terms of address quality based on recipient race, which was, so basically no support for that hypothesis in terms of why we see these different effect sizes and stronger effect sizes among uh, white recipients of our mailers. Yeah. And I don't think we actually did anything with the survey data, right? We were just sort of like, well, well, since we're, while we're sending them <laughs> postcards to check their address quality to see if it bounces, we might as well try this. But we didn't. I, I had actually even forgotten that we had the survey piece until I was saying this thing to you now <laughs> about the postcards. I was like, yeah. oh, there was the survey. <laughs> this is one of those like research, like sausage making pieces yeah. where it's like, well, we're sending them this postcard. We might as well put something on it. And then like, but I think none of us really expected the response yeah. rate to be Hi. I mean, yeah. like always collect more data rather than less data. So. Exactly. Exactly. I guess we should go back and see uh, if anyone responded to our survey. Okay. And then finally, we also ran a parallel experiment where we sent mailers to a comparison group of people without criminal records who lived in the same areas as our main target population. So why did we do this? And what did we find there? Yeah. So what we wanted to see was whether or not Something about our mailer was particularly effective among this population we're interested in, returning citizens who are eligible to vote. And so, as you said, we found, we we created a list of individuals who um, were from the same communities as people who were on our list, but who, as far as we could tell, had no past felony convictions. And they um, all got our basic mailer package minus the extra highlighted criminal justice framing. And we actually don't see any of effect of our mailers among this population. And so what does this mean? We're not entirely sure, but it does suggest that there may be something especially effective about reaching out to the population that we reached out to, or perhaps that they are more easily mobilized than others who have not had their rights taken away but still remain unregistered, for example. We, we don't really know, but I do think it's a really interesting piece of evidence. Yeah. So it does. Yeah. It kind of gets to this thing that we were talking about earlier where like, did we just do an experiment trying to reach economically disadvantaged people? And this is the effect of mailers on economically disadvantaged people. And so this comparison and parallel experiment says, no, (laughs) there's something different about this group. Right. 
Like it doesn't tell us exactly what that different thing is that we've right. potentially tapped into, but right. that it is different, that it is particular, mm-hmm. which I think is helpful because we're interested in this population. Right, for sure. And so, yeah, when I think about this, I, I think the the possibilities kind of fall into two main buckets. Like one of them is we're reaching a, diff- a, a, a population that others are not reaching. Right. So our list is just fundamentally different from the lists that other organizations are trying to contact that are working in this area. Or the information that we're sending them is uniquely valuable to this group. So we're telling them, if you have a criminal record, you can still vote. And maybe other people aren't saying that. Right. And so, or it could be both of those things. But um, yeah, it was at least reassuring. (laughs) That we saw such a stark difference. And it really is like, I mean, for the for the comparison group, it's just, it's not like an, un, an imprecise null. It's like zero. Exactly. There's zero effect exactly. on that group. <laughs> they are not at all affected by our mailer. Exactly. And I was really excited to see that like there's something we're doing that's really getting to this population that um, yeah. you know remains largely unregistered. And I'm really excited to keep trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> um, but it was yeah. like a super exciting result. Yeah. Even if we don't have all the answers around it, you know, like it's still confusing. Right. (laughs) Even if in some ways it raises more questions. Exactly. (laughs) But um, I guess we could also mention, I mean, we've since been working with another organization that does a lot of outreach to try to broaden the electorate and actually compared our list with theirs. It might've been in another state, but but basically there was really very little overlap. Mm -hmm. Like they were, I think everyone was surprised how unique our list was, which really says something about how difficult it is to find yeah. the contact information of people who have criminal justice involvement for some reason. Um, it is difficult to get them onto other lists that are made. Exactly. And there's like there's a number of organizations out there who are interested in mobilizing populations that are sort of similarly unincorporated into the electorate, for example. And so we don't know, we don't know how each of these organizations is pulling their lists together whether it's in any systematic way, it's probably in many cases, right, just like meeting people and spreading out and going to events in the community and things like that. And so, you know, hopefully we've created a, a way to, to do this that helps to sort of expand the reach of efforts trying to reach this population and, and let them know about their, um, their rights. Yeah. We should also mention um, that we looked at what party people registered as. We did. So we couldn't see how people voted, but we could see if they registered as a part of a party when they registered to vote, we could see how they self-identified. What did we find there? Yeah, we didn't really find much of a difference there. We had nearly equal proportions of Democratic registrants and Republican registrants. So at least in our study, right? We did not find that this population was particularly democratic, which is usually the assumption. Right. So at least in North Carolina. In North Carolina. And then also relative to our control group and our comparison groups, like it it wasn't like our, our, we also found that our intervention wasn't especially good at registering people from one group or another. Exactly. uh, Which was also nice because this was, we should highlight a nonpartisan effort. We were not going into (laughs) this trying to register people uh, of a particular political leaning, but I think our prior was, as it is for most people, that this would be a more left-leaning group just because that's the way it's talked about in the news. And it wasn't. Right. Which I thought was great. (laughs) You know, it's like, this doesn't need to be a partisan fight, right? It doesn't need to be a political football, whether we let this group vote or not. 
or try to encourage this group to vote or not. We could just do it because it's good for democracy. Yeah. And I think, you know, another, I think one reason people have the assumption that this group will be particularly democratic is because black and brown people are overrepresented in this population. But even though they are overrepresented, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the vast majority of the population. Right. And so um, this is not to say that we're not going to have white individuals who are registered as both Republican and Democrat. But I think, you know, there is this assumption that it's going to be like 80% black and brown people in this population, but that's just not right, true. Right, right? right. And so I think thinking about it in that way should sort of temper people's assumptions a little bit about what you're going to find when it comes to partisan identification in this in this population. Okay. So what are the policy implications of all of this? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from these results? I think practitioners especially should take away that it's possible to put together a list of individuals in this population for whom they can find good quality addresses. So that's one thing. And in as much as they have the resources to sort of do what we did in this situation, they can probably really broaden the scope of people they're able to reach and potentially register and potentially get out to the polls. So that's one thing. And it might help to sort of increase the efficiency of their practices as well, right? So if we can continue to figure out the kind of interventions that work, so the kind of contact that works with this population, and we find that sending out pretty sort of low touch, as you said, letters with relevant information, maybe not even needing to include a registration form in an envelope, you know, that's cost savings there that they might be able to then put into sort of reaching a a larger swath of this part, a swath of this population. So, oops. So I think that's something that could really be useful to, um, to practitioners. Now, people working in policy, one thing that I think would be really helpful, and as much as these individuals sort of want to be helpful here, is that letting people know they're eligible to vote can be a really important piece of this puzzle. I think it was, and I will have to double check this and let you know for sure, but I think it was um, a piece by Meredith and Morse, right, that found that, you know, a big hurdle here was that people weren't aware that they were eligible. And I think in the study, they, um, randomly assigned individuals who were being released to receive a letter letting them know that they were now eligible to vote again. And they saw effects from that, right? And so this is one place that policy practitioners can come in, that people in policy spaces can come into play. When people are discharged, let them know they can vote or perhaps like include a registration form (laughs) in their discharge materials. Yeah, we wound up having a lot of conversations, um, especially over Twitter, I think, about <laughs> why we, you know, why we were running this experiment instead of just like standing outside of a prison with a clipboard and, <laughs> and registering people yeah. to vote there. And part of it is a matter of scale, yeah. right? And uh, and you know, we can reach more people this way. And we wanted to know if it worked. And part of it is kind of the timing of, you know, when someone walks out of prison, they're not necessarily eligible in that moment. So right. it might, so to some extent, this exactly. is be a question of like, when do you tell them? You know, do you tell them when their parole is wrapping up exactly. or their probation is wrapping up? But yeah, it, de- it definitely, I mean, there is now this stock of people who have been out of prison for a long time that we need to find ways to contact, which right. is what we were focused on. But there's also a flow of people coming out every day that we could be doing a better job of informing at the time when they can use that information. Exactly. So maybe it's when they leave prison, maybe it's when they're wrapping up in parole or probation. But this seems to me something that wouldn't be that difficult to implement. I mean, people are getting information when their sentences are wrapped up anyway. This could be another piece of information. 
Yep. And it's, you know, I mean, some ways an open question about like, would it be as effective to tell someone when they're first re- trying to reintegrate and trying to get a job and everything else? Maybe this is not, maybe they just forget about this other piece of paper. And so actually contacting them in a year would be better. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that this is mostly an information problem, telling people repeatedly <laughs> at every opportunity would be helpful. Yes. So if we're going to disenfranchise people at all, which I think is another question, at least let yeah, them yeah. know when, when they can access the franchise again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the other big implication for me of our results is that, you know, even this, again, super low touch mailer, like I almost think of this as like a proof of concept kind of experiment. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you could imagine a much more involved intervention or you're like knocking on doors <laughs> yeah. and actually talking to people or whatever. But even the low touch mailer was super effective, which suggests that like that hypothesis that was floating around or that that some people, uh, you know, the 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 belief that this group is just, is voting at low rates because they just, they're not interested. They don't want to be involved. Right. That hypothesis really, you know, maybe I'm sure it's true for some people, but we found pretty big effects for of our mailer, you know, on a level that, um, how do I want to say this? <laughs> we found effects from our basic mailer at a level that that was, you know, pretty big uh, relative to what we would find of, of a mailer for, for other populations. Right. And so it suggests that like these people were just sort of waiting to be asked yes. or waiting for the information, which I think a lot of groups out there could run with. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think that's that's the really exciting part. Yeah. So Desmond Eng and, and Jonathan Teebs have a paper looking at the civic responses to police violence. Um, and so they look at what happens to voting behavior of people who live near a location where there was where someone was killed by police. Okay. Um, and they find wow. that registration and voting increases, and those effects are driven entirely by Black and Hispanic residents mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and are largest in, in incidents where it seems like it was a more unjustified killing. That makes me think of sort of like the broad thesis of our co-author's book, uh, Hannah's Exactly. Book. Yes. yes. It's yes. very much in line <laughs> with Hannah Walker's Mobilized by Injustice book. Uh, and uh, we interviewed her for, David Isle interviewed her for the podcast a while back. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, this idea, again, that that's very counter to this other narrative that people who've had this negative interaction with the criminal justice system now are like lost to the polity mm-hmm. and they don't want to engage anymore. This work, um, both this paper and Hannah's work, suggests that actually having these negative interactions moves people to be more engaged. Yeah. And so, which is, again, it's just another piece, another, uh, you know, piece pushing us toward this idea that they're just kind of waiting to be asked yeah. or waiting to find out if they can, yeah. which is just fascinating to me. Well, I mean, this, and I mean, this points to another sort of um, takeaway from this research that I, that I forgot to mention before, but like, this is really useful information to camp- for campaigns, right? So mm-hmm. campaigns that really want to spend their dollars where they think they will be most effective mm-hmm. and are largely ignoring this population, it seems, right? Because they assume, because one, they don't find them on the voter registration list, on the, on the um, mm-hmm. registered voter lists. And two, they probably assume that they won't be able to be mobilized are, you know, this is an untapped area for them. These are people who at least you know, we find in our study so far seem to be, as you said, ready to participate, ready to register, ready to vote. These are new voters, right? (laughs) So you could bring them in. And this is something that could be really useful to campaigns as they think about their strategies, especially if it could be done 
you know, through something low cost like a letter. Yeah. So what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and our team and other people are going to be thinking about going forward? Yeah. So I think a few things. So one, seeing if we can find out more about the differences, the potential differences in our effects across racial groups. Two, seeing if we can identify what it is specifically about either our letter or this population that made it particularly effective among returning citizens and not among our similar group of individuals who had not uh, had prior felony convictions. So those are two things. Um, Three, seeing how this kind of setup works in other contexts, so other states with maybe different registration setups, um, different rules, Um, and then some you know, sort of fun ways that we're looking to expand that are a little sort of further afield from this um, original experiment are one thing that we're excited about is seeing whether or not we can mobilize people through, you know, family members, household members, things like that. So, you know, maybe we reach out to the individual, um, but maybe we also reach out to somebody who lives in the house with them, somebody who's already a voter, and that person can really encourage them to get out and vote. So that's one uh, sort of direction that we're already looking into. And um, another one, and this is probably for like farther down the line, are there other populations that are maybe similar to returning citizens and that, you know, um, they typically don't participate? They're typically sort of not frequent voters, uh, maybe more likely to be unregistered, that we can use administrative data to find and contact in similar ways. And what would those populations be? Yes, you alluded to this, but we are uh, we are all, we are still working on this. <laughs> we just ran an experiment in 2022 yeah. <laughs> in uh, Texas and, and a little bit of follow-up in North Carolina. Uh, so stay tuned for those results. Yeah, and I'll just add something that I mentioned near the beginning that I think I'm, all, I'm interested in kind of how these pushes to engage with the community or, or vote become more involved in in the democratic process, how all of this affects people's longer run outcomes, yeah. how it affects their reintegration to society after after jail or prison or other other kinds of outcomes in the community. And so I think there's definitely a lot of work to be done there trying to see like what are the effects of either policy changes or increases in um, in voter engagement on a variety of other outcomes. Definitely, definitely. Well, my guest today has been Allison Harris from Yale University. Allison, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. This was great. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit, so all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheikh. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks. Oh,